As human beings, there are a few things that we need to know more than anything else. Who we are, who God is, and what is the nature of our relationship to Him. The passage before us tonight lays down some foundational principles which get us off to a good start in answering those questions. Sin and the possibility of redemption are realities for us living in the 21st century. But in Genesis chapter 2, they're not yet realities. Sin was not yet in the picture in Genesis chapter 2. And therefore, redemption from sin was not yet in the picture in Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis 2 does not explicitly answer all the questions that we could ask about our standing before God, about the right way of relating to Him. Uh, Nor does Genesis chapter 2 explicitly tell us what can be done to remedy the effects of sin upon our relationship with God as a fallen human race. But Genesis 2, 1 to 17 gives us some foundational information about ourselves, about God, and about our relationship to Him. Genesis 2 gets us on the right trajectory for further exploration of those themes as we trace them through the rest of Scripture. Genesis 2 gives us the context for correctly understanding both Adam's sin in Genesis 3, which is coming, as well as Christ's work of redemption, uh, which is unfolded in the rest of Scripture. Understanding Adam's context in the Garden of Eden is crucial for correctly understanding both sin and our redemption from it. So last week we looked at what we could call the filial, as like family related or natural context of sin. It would have been most natural for Adam to obey God and it would have been uh, wise and good for Adam to obey God as his benevolent heavenly father. It was extremely unnatural and extremely foolish for Adam to disobey. This week we're looking at the legal context of Adam's sin. Here is the big idea of today's message. As a law-bound, covenantal representative of mankind, Adam foreshadows Jesus Christ, who is another law-bound, covenantal representative of mankind. Let me say that again. As a law-bound, covenantal representative of mankind, Adam foreshadows Jesus Christ, who is another law-bound, covenantal representative of mankind. Don't worry if you don't quite understand that at this point. We're going to unpack the idea further as we go, but for now, it's just important that you grasp the idea that understanding Adam's legal context in the garden is crucial for correctly understanding both sin and our redemption from it. It's key to see Adam's legal context in the garden. So let's begin by revisiting the truth that we touched on last week, that Adam was placed under obligation to God in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. It's obvious that God gave Adam certain commands and expected Adam to obey him. Look at verses 15 to 17, which we're particularly focusing in on tonight. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God gave commands to Adam in the Garden of Eden. 
I want you to notice three things. The first thing I want you to notice is that, as Kent Hughes says it so well, quote, God's first word to Adam was permissive. Adam was to partake of everything in the garden to his heart's content, which included the tree of life. This is lavish, extravagant abundance, and Adam could take from the tree of life if he wanted it. Everything was there for him, everything he could possibly want, end quote. God's first words here to Adam was permissive. You may, you may. As I mentioned last week, we must be clear that the God of the Bible is not a cosmic killjoy. God is not out to limit the pleasure and satisfaction of the human race. As we've already talked about, God has woven potentiality for our delight and for joy into the very fabric of this world. And He originally put us in a world where everything we could ever want, including He Himself, was readily available to us. We had access to everything that could possibly delight and satisfy us. Uh, the cravings of our nature, the, the uh, deepest longings of our heart, everything we could possibly want, including God Himself, was readily accessible to Adam and Eve in the garden. So I just want to hammer that point home because that is so crucial to understand. God has made provision uh, in the beginning and now again through Christ Jesus for our joy, for our delight. The second thing I want you to notice is that God gave Adam a job to do. He was put in the garden, look at verse 15, to work it and keep it. The third thing that I want you to notice is that God gave Adam a prohibition. Look at verse 17. He was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam was clearly placed under obligation in the Garden of Eden, even before the fall. Adam was not at liberty to do exactly as he pleased. Adam was to operate within the boundaries that God had set for him and be diligent to complete the work that God had given to him. He had both a positive duty, something that he was supposed to do, as well as a negative duty, things that he was not supposed to do. He had both of those things already in the garden before the fall of mankind. And yet, at the same time, creation was very good. That was God's pronouncement of it. The creation was very good. At the same time, God was gracious and good to Adam. At the same time as God gave Adam a law, God was gracious and good to Adam. God was not robbing Adam of some blessedness by giving him law. God was providing for Adam's blessedness by giving him law. So we see here then that in principle, law is not antithetical to the blessedness of the human race. Law is not standing in the way of us and our joy. Law is not in between us an obstacle, a hurdle that we have to get over in order to find true pleasure and satisfaction. Law is not the problem. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says that the law is good. The law is good. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The law is not the problem. Our breach of the law has caused the problem. But I just want to drive home that point at the beginning, that law in principle is not antithetical to the blessedness of the human race. Keep that idea in mind as we consider Adam's obligations to God further. Let's consider now more deeply the nature of the law that Adam was placed under. What we see is that there was both moral and positive law at work already here in the garden. 
Theologians categorize biblical divine law in two ways, positive law and moral law. This refers to two types of commandments. As Sam Renahan says, who's a pastor in California, there is that which is right because of who God is and how he has made the world. And then there is that which is right because it has been commanded. Positive law is that which is right because it has been commanded. Moral law is that which is right because of who God is and how he has made the world. These are two kinds of divine law that we see in Scripture. Two categories of divine law that we see in Scripture. And we see both in Scripture. Positive law is specifically given to particular people in a particular context and is binding exclusively upon them. For those particular people, obeying positive law is right because it has been commanded. Moral law is given to the whole human race. It's binding on all people everywhere at all times and cannot be otherwise because moral law is rooted in who God is and how He has made the world. You see both of those kinds of laws in Scripture. And when we consider all of Scripture, we see that both of these laws were given to Adam in the garden. As the 1689 Confession says, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Using that terminology that the confession uses, the particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was positive law. It was specifically for Adam in that time and place. It was right for Adam to obey that law because it had been commanded. This law is explicitly in this text. Adam obviously had a particular law not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was binding on him simply because God had commanded it. Had God not commanded it, there's no reason to think that there would be something inherently wrong with eating a piece of fruit from that particular tree. But because God said don't eat from that particular tree, it was wrong. So it's clear that Adam had that particular positive law not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we don't have to prove that any further. Everybody agrees Adam was under that law because it's so obvious in the text. But I said a few moments ago that there was also a law of universal obedience written in Adam's heart, which was not only for Adam, but was for everyone who would come after Adam everywhere on the face of the earth. That law of universal obedience written in his heart, as the 1689 Confession says, is that which is right because of who God is and how he has made the world. In other words, the moral law was written on Adam's heart. And you might ask, how do we know that Adam received God's moral law written in his heart, obligating him to that which is right because of who God is and how he has made the world? I mean, we can clearly see that Adam received God's positive law not to eat from the tree of the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's right there in Genesis 2.17. But how do we know that Adam had God's moral law written in his heart, obligating him to that which is right because of who God is and how he has made the world? I don't see that anywhere in the text. That's a fair question. In response, let me prove it to you in two ways. The first way that we see that God's moral law was written in Adam's heart, is that it could not be otherwise. If there is such a thing as moral law, if there is such a thing as that which is right because of who God is 
and how he has made the world, then it would not be right uh, for us to conceive of God not to expect Adam to live according to that standard. In other words, if there are things that are always because of the nature of who God is and how he has made the world, if there are things that are always repugnant to him by virtue of who he is and how he has made the world, then it would be uh, impossible for God not to expect that of any moral beings whom he has created. So think about it. Just a little thought experiment here. Provided that Adam didn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would it have been fine for Adam to worship false gods, create images of other gods, disrespect God, refuse to set aside time to worship God? Would it have been right, as long as he didn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for Cain and Abel to disrespect Adam, for Adam to murder once the earth was populated more, to cheat on Eve? Would it have been fine for him to steal from other humans once the earth became more populated, lie about others, covet other people's things? You can see that just by the very nature of things, if God is holy, and if there are things that are morally repugnant to him, always, in all places, and in all times, by virtue of who he is and how he has made the world, then it could not be otherwise than that there was moral law active in the garden. And so by deduction, we see that moral law had to be written on Adam's heart in the garden. Or, or, or conceivably, at this point, conceivably God could have otherwise instructed him in some way. But Adam had to have God's moral law in the garden. It could not be otherwise. If there is such a thing as moral law, it had to be operative right from the beginning with Adam and Eve. But we do see that it was, in fact, written on Adam's heart. And this is taught elsewhere in Scripture later on. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul says that the Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. They don't have the law in written form, but they have the substance of the law written on their hearts. We're going to get to that eventually, Lord willing. Uh, as I hope to preach on Romans once we're done, Ephesians. But suffice it to say that the law uh, is said to have been written on the hearts of the Gentiles. So the Jews had the written law, but God says through the Apostle in Romans chapter 2 that even the Gentiles have the law written on their hearts. And so what we see is that it's a part and parcel of how God has created mankind that he has written his law on our hearts he's given us an internal sense of right and wrong and some people would say well um, you know people why do people think differently then about what's right and what's wrong well the Bible talks about how our sense of right and wrong has been skewed and perverted by sin even in Romans chapter 2 in that same context Paul talks about how the Gentiles' consciences are unreliable and accuse or even excuse them. And so what we see is that sin has rendered the law written on our hearts uh, distorted, but not, has not absolutely erased the law written on our hearts, which is why everybody has a moral, uh, some sense of morality. God has written His law on our hearts. I've used the analogy before uh, in speaking of the image of God of a little ball-peen hammer tapping a mirror. It's the same thing with, with the law of God. That it's, if you think of our consciences as a mirror, and in the garden they would have 
reflected perfectly the demands of God's law. Sin is like taking a little hammer and tapping that mirror. And so it, the mirror shatters and fragments. And so there's some reflection of right and wrong, though it's distorted and, and so on and so forth. This is what men's consciences are like after the fall. And this is why conscience is not a reliable guide. But everybody has some sense of right and wrong. And that's because in the beginning, God wrote his law on the hearts of human beings. And this is why Paul can say that even the Gentiles who have never heard about the God of Israel have the work of the law written on their hearts because it's something that God has made part of our created constitution as human beings. So the moral law was written on Adam's heart. So what we see is that there was law in the garden before the fall. There was moral law and positive law in the garden before the fall. And none of these things were antithetical to Adam's blessedness. All of these things were operative in a state of blessedness, in a state of great joy, great delight, and great satisfaction. We need to see now that God attached reward and punishment to Adam's obedience or disobedience in the garden. Genesis 2.17 plainly demonstrates that there was punishment attached to Adam's disobedience. It says, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The rest of Scripture demonstrates that Adam's disobedience resulted in punishment for the entire human race. Turn with me, for example, to Romans 5.12, which says that sin came into the world through one man, who is implicitly Adam, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Keep your finger in Romans 5 for a moment. The teaching of Scripture on this point is that Adam was acting as a representative of mankind when he was placed in the garden. So his sin, if he chose not to obey God, would result in punishment for all mankind. And in fact, that's what happened. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses the illustration of a political ambassador on a mission to a foreign country to explain this idea of Adam's representative function. If an ambassador to a foreign country declares war, the whole country is at war. Every citizen of that country without exception. A citizen cannot say the ambassador didn't act as my representative when he declared war, and so I am not at war. My country may be at war, but I'm not at war. No, the ambassador acts on behalf of every single individual whom he represents. And this is, in fact, what happened when Adam sinned. Adam sinned, and everyone represented by him bore the consequences for his sin. Namely, the God-ordained punishment for sin, which is death. But if Adam had not sinned, if he had not done what he shouldn't, and if he had done what God had commanded him to do, if he had finished the work that God gave him, there would have been a reward for Adam and for everyone whom he represents. Again, this is not explicit in the text, but it's an unavoidable consequence of the teaching of the rest of Scripture. Look back at Romans 5, where I asked you to keep your finger. Verses 18 and 19, where Adam's disobedience is contrasted with Christ's obedience. It says, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made righteous, so by one man's obedience, or pardon me, by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many were made righteous. 
And the implication of this verse is that Christ finished the work that God gave him to do. And so his righteousness is complete and full. Christ's righteousness is not pending approval, nor is Christ's righteousness forever in a state of endless probation. Christ cried out on the cross, It is finished. The work that God gave him was completed. And this is the one act of righteousness which leads to justification and life for all men. Adam, likewise, could have finished the work that God gave him to do. He could have been obedient and confirmed himself and his posterity in righteousness forever. This is the nature of the comparison being made between Adam and Christ. The logic of Romans 5 is that Christ came to do what Adam failed to do. That's the logic of Romans chapter 5. If they had two different jobs and two different functions in redemptive history, Paul couldn't make the comparisons that he does in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. The logic is that Christ has come as the second Adam to do what the first Adam had failed to do. Adam failed to keep the positive law and the moral law that he was placed under. And so he and those whom he represented received punishment. In contrast, Christ successfully kept the positive law and moral law that he was placed under. And so he and those whom he represented received reward. Justin Taylor, who works for Crossway and blogs for the Gospel Coalition, talks about the necessity of a probation period for Adam, that there must have been a probation period for Adam. He says, Paul's parallelism of Adam and Christ suggests a limited probationary period. Christ's obedience to his father was tested. He passed and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. If Christ was tested and the duration of the test was for a limited time, this suggests that Adam was tested for a limited time as well. I agree. I think that the the comparison between Adam and Christ in the New Testament makes it clear that there was a probationary period for Adam. That his obedience or disobedience during that probationary period would bring either reward or punishment to Adam and his descendants. He had work to do, he had law to keep, and his successful completion of that work and that his successful obedience to that law would have confirmed him and his posterity in blessedness and would have attained reward. But he failed, and so he plunged all those whom he represented into sin and misery. And Christ Jesus comes to do that which the first Adam failed to do. That's the logic of Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, where the first Adam and Christ Jesus, the second Adam, are contrasted. And so we've seen that Adam was placed in a garden of plenty and placed under obligation to God to keep both God's moral law and the positive law that God gave him. Adam was placed under probation or a time of testing and there would be rewards or punishments for him and his descendants depending on his obedience or his lack thereof. Theologians call these terms of relationship the covenant of works. Some people reject the idea that Adam was under a covenant of works, under the covenant of works, because we don't see the word covenant in Genesis. But again, and I keep on saying this because it's, it's really important to get a sound, harmonized, coherent doctrine of Scripture. We cannot commit the word thing fallacy, which is to argue that just because a word is not present, a concept is not present. And so, again, just as the word Trinity 
is not in the Bible, the concept is. So likewise, the phrase covenant of works is not in the Bible, but the concept is. And at his creation, Adam was certainly placed in a covenant with God. In Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7, God is rebuking his people and says, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And so we do have explicit warrant later in scripture for seeing a covenant here in Genesis. But a covenant is basically terms of relationship, defined terms of relationship. And so Adam clearly had defined terms of relationship in the beginning. And so even aside from Hosea 6-7, and there are some scholars who debate how that verse should be exactly translated, even without Hosea 6-7, we're warranted here to see that Adam had a works-based relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. God threatened punishment for disobedience and offered reward for obedience. He had a works-based relationship. He was acting as a representative of those whom he represented even aside from Hosea 6-7, we see enough from the biblical data to see that Adam was placed under a covenant in the Garden of Eden. He was placed in covenant to God. And we see in Genesis chapter 2 that, we, that Moses begins to use the name Yahweh. In chapter 1, it's Elohim. In chapter 2, he begins to, to say the Lord God in our English Bibles, Yahweh Elohim. And Yahweh uh, is the name that God had revealed himself to his covenant people, Israel, by. And so, so scholars often talk about Yahweh as being God's personal covenantal name. And that begins to be introduced in Genesis chapter 2. And so what we see is that Adam was certainly placed in covenant with God from the beginning in from his creation, he was appointed as a representative and it was a workspace covenant where his obedience or lack thereof would affect both him and his posterity, all whom he represented. This is the covenant of works. Now, of course, we know that Adam did not honor the terms of the covenant of works and transgressed God's law, incurring the penalty that the covenant of works threatened upon its breach. And so Adam and his posterity died, as we read a few minutes ago from Romans 5. So what hope is there then? Is the Bible merely a story of human failure and then subsequent human guilt and inability? No, of course not. The Bible is a true story. It is a true story. It's history, but it is a story nonetheless. With plot development, with tension and conflict, with a climax and with a conclusion. And we see that the author of this story, God himself, placed Adam strategically at the beginning of the story, both to thicken the plot by plunging us into sin and to foreshadow, which is to hint in advance about how the tension or conflict would be resolved. Adam was placed strategically in history as a foreshadower of another man who would come after him. Remember the main idea of today's message that I told you at the beginning? As a law-bound, covenantal representative of mankind, Adam foreshadows Jesus Christ, who is another law-bound, covenantal representative of mankind. Let's consider this idea further by conducting a thought experiment. Either God could not redeem the world right away after Adam fell, 
Or God chose not to redeem the world right away after Adam fell. If we back up a little bit, either Adam, pardon me, either God could not have prevented the fall, or God chose not to prevent the fall. If we go back even further, either God could not have created a world in which man would not fall, or God chose not to create a world in which God would not fall. And when we think... Man would not fall. Pardon me. Yes, pardon me. God chose not to create a world in which man would not fall. When we think about it this way, in view of Scripture's teaching on God's sovereignty, the conclusion is this. God must have planned a world in which Adam would sin. Therefore, Adam and the covenant of works was not God's plan A for the blessedness of the human race. So what was the point of Adam? And what was the point of the covenant of works? What was the point of setting up a man in covenant with God and appointing him as a representative for the human race and placing him in a relationship where his obedience or lack thereof toward the law would result in the damnation or blessedness of all whom he represents? If that was not God's plan A for the blessedness of the human race, if God planned a world in which Adam would be placed in a covenant of works and in which Adam would transgress a covenant of works, then what was the point of the covenant of works? God placed Adam in the garden as a type, or as the King James Version of Romans 5.14 says, a figure of him who was to come. As I said at the beginning, understanding Adam's context in the Garden of Eden is crucial for understanding both sin and our redemption from it. God gave Adam and the covenant of works in order that we could properly understand the Christ who would eventually come and the nature of his work. Without Adam and the covenant of works, what would we fail to understand? If the covenant of works was basically given to be instructive to us, if it wasn't God's plan A for our blessedness, but it was given to us in order to help us understand the nature of Christ and his work, then what would we fail to understand without Adam and the covenant of works. We would fail to understand that we owe God obedience as creatures, that it's most natural and beneficial for creatures to obey their Creator. If we didn't see Adam with all this blessedness and the opportunity for life and joy and delight and then the consequent sin and misery of rebellion, if that fall had never happened, if God just created a world in which Right from the beginning, Christ Jesus and His obedience was the nature of our blessedness, and there never was a fall. We would fail to understand that properly. We would fail, secondly, to see that we owe God obedience as people in covenantal relationship to God. We would not understand these things in the depth and the richness uh, that we do, having seen Adam's failure and the consequences of Adam's failure. Uh, we would fail to understand that we stand by nature under condemnation for the broken covenant of works as Adam's descendants. If we just lost the book of Genesis somewhere along the way and we didn't have it, we would fail to understand that we are all by nature 
under condemnation for the broken covenant of works as Adam's descendants. We would fail to understand, fourthly, that God's law is not the inhibitor of our blessedness, but our transgression of God's law is the inhibitor of our blessedness. As I already quoted from Romans chapter 7, Paul says the law is good. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. We would fail to understand, fifthly, that though God's law is good, we cannot be justified by it. The covenant of works demands perfect and perpetual obedience. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Not three strikes and you're out. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And presumably the same would go if Adam had broken any of God's moral law, which we saw he was placed under. If Adam did not live in holiness before God, he would die. The covenant of works requires perfect and perpetual obedience. And we would fail to understand that God's design is to deal with mankind on the basis of imputation. Imputation is the crediting of guilt or righteousness of a representative to those whom he represents. There are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Adam broke the covenant of works and his guilt was imputed to us. And so we were plunged into sin and misery. Christ kept the covenant of works for us. That's what the covenant of grace is, or the new covenant. The new covenant is basically Christ's keeping of the covenant of works for us. That's the nature of His righteousness. And it's His keeping of the covenant of works which is imputed to us and is the basis of our justification. Listen carefully here. The gospel is not that God doesn't care about perfect and perpetual obedience anymore. The gospel is not that in the Old Testament, God was really serious about obedience. God was really concerned about holiness back then. But now that Christ has come, God is he's really just a lot more loving. He's a lot more patient. He's a lot more tolerant of sin. And so if you, if you trust in Jesus and try to be a good person, God will accept you. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that there is a holy God who requires perfect and perpetual obedience. And if you have perfect and perpetual obedience, perfect righteousness, you will live. And if you don't have perfect and perpetual obedience, you don't have perfect righteousness, you will die. And so the gospel is that Christ kept the covenant of works for us. He was placed under positive and moral law, and He kept the positive law and the moral law fully on our behalf. And God has imputed His righteousness to us. And so this contrast between Adam and Christ that we see in Scripture helps us understand that it is God's plan to deal with mankind on the basis of imputation. You either have Adam's sin imputed to you or you have Christ's righteousness imputed to you. Those are the two kinds of people walking the face of this earth. And understanding the covenant of works properly helps us understand that principle and the nature of Uh, righteousness so of course then we must hope in Christ who is the sole fulfiller of the conditions of the covenant of works no one else has done it no one else could do it but Galatians 4.4 which we read earlier tells us that Christ has done it in the fullness of time God sent forth his son born of a woman born what? under the law in order to redeem those who 
were under the law in order that we might receive adoption as sons. And so Christ uh, kept the covenant of works for us. We must not trust in Adam's keeping of the covenant of works for us. We must not think that we're fine by nature. We must not just try to resolve and recognize that if Adam has plunged us into sin and misery, we must not just try to resolve that we will keep the covenant of works better than Adam did. No, we must abandon hope of Adam's keeping of the covenant of works, and we must abandon any hope of ourselves keeping the covenant of works. But we must hope in Christ Jesus, who has kept the covenant of works for us. He came and lived a perfect and sinless life, which fulfilled the precepts of God's law. And he died a punishment-bearing, wrath-bearing, sin-bearing death, which fulfills the penalty of the covenant of works, that the covenant of works required for us. And so again, as a law-bound covenantal representative of mankind, Adam foreshadows Jesus Christ, who is another law-bound covenantal representative of mankind. Adam was put at the beginning of the true story that God has written and decreed for this earth in order to give us categories and context for understanding sin and redemption. Adam's failure to meet the demands of a holy God who is full of goodness and benevolence, his incurring of guilt and corruption for himself and his posterity uh, is contrasted with Christ Jesus, who is the second Adam, the good and holy God who damned Adam and his posterity for the breach of the covenant of works, sent a second Adam, Christ Jesus, to do what the first Adam failed to do for our sake. Christ met the demands of a holy God who is full of goodness and benevolence in order that we might live in right relationship to that good God forever. This is truly good news. This is the biblical gospel. Not in Adam, but in Christ is our hope to be found. This was God's design from the beginning, from even before Adam was formed of the dust of the earth. Adam was not God's plan A, Christ Jesus was God's plan A. And Adam is set at the beginning of redemptive history as a type, as a foreshadowing of a second Adam who would come and fulfill perfect righteousness in order that his perfect righteousness might be imputed to all who are represented by Him. Christ Jesus is God's plan A, the focal point of history and the right and proper object of our adoration, our trust, and our worship.